0: So we know now that there's many different mixed types of dementia, and it's changed the way we look at drug development, because we realize that it's going to be harder to get a magic bullet when most people have these mixed dementias.
1: The BioWorld Insider Podcast. This is the BioWorld Insider Podcast, and I'm Lynn Yaffe. During a year dominated in large part by COVID-19, another crisis continues to unfold across the globe. It's the increasing prevalence of dementia with Alzheimer's disease as its most common form. As researchers from more than 110 countries gather for the Alzheimer's Association International Conference this week, we wanted to take stock of an important disease that with its growing global incidence touches millions of lives. To discuss some of the most important issues under consideration at the meeting and in the broader field, our old staff writer Lee Landeberger today is joined by Dr. Howard Fillett, founding executive director and chief science officer at the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation, which was founded by S.D. Lauder heirs Leonard and Ronald Lauder to accelerate the discovery of drugs to prevent, treat, and cure Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Phillett, a geriatrician, neuroscientist, and professor at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, has led the foundation since its founding in 1998. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Fillett. Over to you, Lee. Thanks,
2: Lynn, and welcome, Dr. Fillett. Thanks for spending time with us today. Thanks, Lee. You've helped broaden understanding of this disease. So tell us a little bit about the venture philanthropy approach the foundation takes and its role in advancing care.
0: Sure, thanks. Well, we were incorporated in 1998, and in our incorporation papers, we told the Internal Revenue Service, which Uh, oversees all philanthropies in the United States, that we were gonna do three things, and only three things. And they were all related to the development of new drugs for Alzheimer's. Number one, we were gonna develop new biomarkers that would lead to blood tests, but more importantly, would accelerate the development of new drugs. And you saw that play out dramatically with the recent approval, accelerated approval of aducanumab, Biogen's drug, and I could talk about that later. Secondly, that we were gonna develop new prevention methods for preventing Alzheimer's disease, including drugs and lifestyle approaches. And number three, that we would be heavily invested in developing new drugs for Alzheimer's disease. As a result of that, we developed a business model because we realized that we were in a commercial space, basically wanting to bring new drugs to market and accelerate their development. And so with that, we kind of adopted a model where we would as we invested in biotechs, which we told the Internal Revenue Service that we intended to do, that as we invested in biotech companies and in programs in universities, that we would seek a return on investment that would lead to uh, more revenue for us to invest in new research. And finally, that we would take a very proactive approach to accelerating the development of new drugs for Alzheimer's disease, uh, hiring scientists like myself reaching out to scientists all over the world, funding internationally in over 20 countries now, and helping scientists to develop their ideas and their programs for new drugs for Alzheimer's disease, Um, sort of like a venture model, but in the nonprofit sector.
2: There's a new University of Washington forecast that was presented at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference this week that estimates the number of people with dementia globally is going to triple to more than 152 million people by 2050. So what are some of the most important ways that research might help get ahead of the trend?
0: Well, there have been studies looking at what the impact of treatment and prevention would be on the occurrence of the disease. And I I think it's an achievable goal. It's clearly achievable to reduce the prevalence and the incidence of Alzheimer's disease. So one study by um, a group Uh, one group, showed that if you consider it in a simplistic way, let's say the average age of death in the United States is 80 years old. And let's say that the average age of onset of clinical Alzheimer's disease, namely dementia, is about 75. And let's say that there was a way that we could delay the onset of dementia by just five years. If we did that, then the number of new cases of Alzheimer's disease would be reduced by 50% which is huge because the reason being that 50% of people would live a full life at that point without having ever developed cognitive impairment or dementia. And I I think that's an achievable goal. People would die from other causes like heart attacks, hopefully in the middle of the night, uh, and not have to suffer this nightmare. So that's one way to do it. And is that possible today? Well, not too long ago, the Lancet Commission, which is a very well-known group that does uh, reviews of what evidence is out there, they came out with a very large report in the leading journal out of the UK called The Lancet, which uh, delineated all that we know about prevention of Alzheimer's disease. And they stated based on current research that 40% of cases of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias could be prevented if people did simple things like don't smoke, don't drink excessively, exercise, make sure that your hearing is okay. If you have comorbidities like diabetes and hypertension, manage them well because they're risk factors for cognitive decline in late life and Alzheimer's disease. Um, Eat a healthy diet, a Mediterranean diet has been shown to uh, reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. So the Lancet, a very prestigious group out of the UK and Europe has already said that we, if people live these, uh, these lifestyle and manage their medical comorbidities, that 40% of the cases could be prevented. And then Mia Kibäpelto, who's now one of our board members, a professor out of the University of Kupio in Finland, she did a randomized clinical trial looking at whether or not if people who are basically well, but in midlife and in late life but not necessarily cognitively impaired, but just undergoing cognitive aging. If they adhere to these preventative measures, what would happen in terms of their cognition? And she showed in a randomized trial where there was a control group that didn't adhere uh, strictly to these uh, methods, that the people who did adhere to these methods actually had a a slowed rate of cognitive decline. So we have a lot of data now that Alzheimer's is preventable uh, and we like to say in a, in a soundbite that doing all the things that people are currently aware of to prevent heart disease, including one more thing related to the brain, which is staying socially and or occupationally engaged, keeping your mind stimulated, doing all those things can help you to prevent or delay the onset of Alzheimer's disease in late life. So I think that that's one thing that we can do. The second thing that we can do is develop drugs. And we're getting so much more progress in the development of drugs for Alzheimer's disease. But what we really wanna do is move those drugs into prevention. And that's already being done as well. So for example, our foundation just funded the addition of the leading anti-aging drug that's out there, drug called metformin, which is a diabetes drug, the leading diabetes drug in the world. But it's also an anti-aging drug and it's known to have effects on insulin sensitivity and glucose utilization in the brain, which is a huge user of, of glucose as a source of energy. And just like in diabetes, there's insulin resistance, there's insulin resistance in the aging brain. So what we're doing is in the next iteration of Dr. Kipopelto's, uh prevention studies is adding on drugs like metformin to see if we can get further impact on preventing Alzheimer's disease. But even drugs like the anti-amyloid antibody aducanumab that was just approved for the treatment of people with mild dementia and mild cognitive impairment. There are studies using those kinds of drugs in people who are normal and seeing if we can prevent the progression of amyloid deposition in people who are cognitively normal. And the big breakthrough there was a biomarker called PET-Amovid or amyloid scanning using PET imaging to identify people who are cognitively normal in midlife who have early Alzheimer's disease in their brain. And we can do that now with modern techniques and identify people at risk and then get them into a treatment trial or prevention trial, I should say, and see if we can prevent the progression of that amyloid accumulation or even reduce the amyloid accumulation and the goal there is that before people even become symptomatic, we would prevent the disease. So it's, it's just amazing what's going on now. It's just incredible.
2: Biomarkers are a big focus of your work at the foundation and one that you invested $2 million in recently. Can you tell me a little more about work on developing digital biomarkers with the Alzheimer's Research UK?
0: Sure. Well, biomarkers come in a number of flavors. Um, There's no imaging biomarkers, which we could talk about, that have really revolutionized the field and uh, enabled the recent biogen work that led to the first disease-modifying therapy getting an accelerated approval. And accelerated approval means that there was enough biomarker evidence in that trial that the FDA felt confident that the drug would have a clinical effect. So biomarkers really enabled the recent approval. So you have neuroimaging biomarkers that are well validated. We can see plaques and tangles in the living human brain of people. We have spinal fluid biomarkers that are really good biomarkers and a lot of innovative ones um, that can look at, again, beta amyloid in the spinal fluid, tau in the spinal fluid, inflammation in the spinal fluid that affects the rate of progression of Alzheimer's disease. And now, in the last few months, We had the approval in the united states through what's called a clear approval for uh laboratory developed tests by a company called c2n a test called presivity ad which is the first blood test for alzheimer's disease and another company that we invested in another program that the foundation invested in and today i can in my office if patient comes in with a memory complaint and let's say they're 65, and they want to know what they have. What they have, maybe they want to go into a clinical trial. I can send them for a brain scan. I can do a spinal tap, and now I can do a, a blood test. And there's other blood tests coming down the road. But the digital biomarkers that you refer to are adding a fourth component to our ability to detect changes very early and very inexpensively in patients, in people with with uh, let's say preclinical Alzheimer's disease. Let's say uh, somebody is using their computer and they're in the earliest stages of Alzheimer's where if somebody met them on the street or even their spouse might just have an inkling that there's a little bit of a problem, but it's not really clear. They're not ready to go into the doctor, but they might go onto a website where the tracking of how they use the computer can be made. And differences between normal people and people in the very earliest stages of cognitive impairment, a digital biomarker using your computer, it can be picked up on a passive or an active basis. In other words, on a passive basis, I might be a program that monitors your computer use. And then I can pick up that as things are changing, maybe you need to go to your doctor and get an evaluation. Or it could be active. Maybe you're concerned about your cognitive function, and you have what we call subjective cognitive decline, which is the earliest clinical stages of the disease where even doctors and neuropsychologists might not be able to pick up your cognitive impairment, but you know that there's something going on. We call that subjective cognitive decline. Now we have tests that can actually, using digital technologies like computers, like smartphones and so on, uh, can pick up the very earliest changes. For example, we're developing, as another example, a speech and language consortium that will monitor the speech and language of individuals. And again, one of the earliest changes that happens in people with very early Alzheimer's disease and related dementias is changes in their language. Uh, vocabulary declines. The complexity of sentences gets more simple and grammar changes. The prosody, the use of um, emotion in language changes. And we can pick all all of these changes up using modern voice recognition technology. So maybe you're talking into your phone, your smartphone, uh, and we're supporting digital technologies that will be able to, let's say your doctor is concerned and you complain of subjective cognitive decline. Maybe instead of doing a blood test or in addition to doing a blood test, your doctor could sign you up for an app that would measure your speech and language, and the doctor would get a report. And the report would tell the doctor whether your speech and language predicts that you're going to get Alzheimer's disease. And another new biomarker category that's coming of age now are retinal biomarkers. And in this case, the retina, the back of the eye, is the mirror of the brain. And we can see amyloid deposits and look at the microvasculature of the back of the eye in the retina. And that predicts, detects, I should say, the early onset of Alzheimer's disease in people. So imagine one day when you go for, and that day is not far off, maybe a couple of years at most, you'll go for your routine annual eye exam. And in addition to seeing if you have cataracts and what your vision is, um, the doctor will have a device or the ophthalmologist will have a device, or maybe the optometrist will have this device where they can look in the back of your eye and see if you have Alzheimer's disease and what your vascular status is in terms of how it relates to cognitive impairment. So all of these biomarkers, these five categories that I've given you, are going to change dramatically. They're already changing, but they're going to change dramatically the landscape of cognitive decline with aging, Alzheimer's early detection, and again, clinical trials, because all of these biomarkers will be used one way or another in clinical trials to make them more efficient, more rigorous, more sensitive, and less expensive.
2: Even with these great advances, it's still tough to differentiate between different types of dementia, like between Alzheimer's disease and frontotemporal dementia and dementia with Lewy bodies. Has there been any progress on differentiation? And if there has been, what does that mean for patients?
0: Well, it's difficult for the clinician in, let's say, a primary care setting to make that distinction. Let's say Let's compare the three that you mentioned just as a starting point, because there's also vascular dementia, which is the second most common cause of dementia in elderly people, and a few other kinds of dementia that we could talk about. But let's stick to the three that you mentioned, which was um, frontotemporal dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and Lewy body disease. So on a clinical level, Alzheimer's disease is generally, and this is stereotypic, generally characterized by early memory loss, and particularly a specific type of memory loss that's created in a specific part of the brain called the hippocampus and the interrhinal, medial temporal cortex. So in the case of most people with Alzheimer's disease characterized by plaques and tangles, the clinical manifestation is what's called episodic memory loss. In other words, you forget things that are happening in your short-term memory, but your long-term memory remains intact. And you generally don't have what's called executive dysfunction. So executive dysfunction is based in the front of the brain, in the frontal lobes of the brain. Executive function, human cognitive tasks like abstract reasoning, multitasking, planning, scheduling, uh, emotional control, and those kinds of activities that you know kind of make us human. And and in that case, the pathology in the early stages is characterized in the frontal lobes because that's where the disease starts. And the primary manifestations early on are executive dysfunction and not necessarily memory loss uh, and often characterized in the clinic as a change in personality. And then you have Lewy body disease, which affects the brain in a different part of the brain, generally in the parts of the brain where Parkinson's disease is affected, And it's kind of a continuum with parkinson's disease here it's characterized by deposits of lewy bodies that are composed of a molecule called alpha-synuclein and in this case the progression of the disease is often beginning with memory loss but people have other features particularly hallucinations and visual disturbances and a lot of aggression and this kind of behavior so we can distinguish patients of those three diseases by their clinical presentation. And then we can look at their MRI imaging as a next test. And if you do an MRI, particularly if you do what's called a volumetric analysis, where you actually quantify the brain volumes of different regions of the brain, what you're going to see is what you expect for the three different kinds. So in an Alzheimer's disease, you're going to see shrinkage of the hippocampus, which can be measured quantitatively using modernized, modern computer techniques. You can measure the volumes and the presence of disease in the frontal lobes. And we can specifically see that there's frontal atrophy on the MRI and, and designate people as having frontotemporal dementia based on their MRI patterns. And similarly with, with Lewy body disease, we see specific patterns of atrophy as well. Then we can do a PET scan. So positon emission te- tomography, what that means is that we can look at, for example, glucose utilization in different parts of the brain. We talked earlier about the, how the brain is 3% of the body weight uses 25% of the body's energy at any given time. And most of that energy comes from glucose and oxygen. And that's why a diabetic that becomes hypoglycemic within seconds, the first thing that happens is that they go unconscious. But we can use that fact, that biology, and use a certain form of glucose and inject that radioactive form of glucose called fluorodeoxyglucose, doesn't affect anything. And we can use that fluorodeoxyglucose to look at metabolism in the brain. So what are we gonna see? In Alzheimer's disease, you're gonna see metabolism of glucose in the hippocampus and the, and the temporal lobes. In frontotemporal dementia, you're gonna see decreased metabolism in the frontal lobes. And in Lewy body, you're going to see it somewhat in the temporal lobes, but then you can do another kind of test to look at where the Lewy bodies are affecting the brain in the basal ganglia and so on. So we can use imaging and more specifically, now we have FDA approved tests like the ones that were used in the Biogen trial, where we can specifically see the amyloid and that's specific for Alzheimer's disease. So we can send people for a third form of neuroimaging and find the amyloid in their brain and specifically make a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. We can also detect tangles, but tangles aren't specific for Alzheimer's. They're seen in many different forms of dementia, but they do tell us something about what's going on with the disease. And similarly, these blood tests and spinal fluid tests that I talk about can be used to discriminate. Long-winded answer, but the bottom line is actually that it's not as clear as we would like. And what we're finding is that many people have mixed forms of dementia. So 35% of people who were diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease at autopsy, who have amyloid plaques and tangles in their brain, also have Lewy bodies. And a lot of people, as they progress through the stages of dementia, will have frontal lobe disease and develop executive dysfunction, which is very disabling. So we know now that there's many different mixed types of dementia and it's changed the way we look at drug development because we realize that it's going to be harder to get a magic bullet when most people have these mixed dementias.
2: Speaking of drug development, one of the big questions at the conference this year is about the approval of Adjahelm and how it might impact the way the clinical trials uh, are conducted, so I have a couple of questions for you. Might Ajahelm become the control treatment in new studies, and might ongoing trials be affected by people dropping out to take Ajahelm in the future?
0: Now think about cancer. There, it's the case you're referring to in the extreme, and uh, we have many drugs on the market for cancer, but people still need to go into clinical trials and. What we know for most diseases is that less than 5% of people with any particular disease want to go into a clinical trial. And these are often people, kind of unique people that, you know, really want to make a contribution and they want to try something new. And sometimes they have a form of the disease based on their biomarkers that doesn't fit well with the current therapies. And so they, they want to try something new. And the 5% or less metric is true for cancer, and it's true for Alzheimer's disease. I think what's going to happen with aducanumab is that a certain proportion of people with Alzheimer's disease will go on treatment, but we don't know how long they'll stay on treatment. There's a certain burden of uh, receiving that drug. There's a lot of imaging, there's nurse testing, there's monitoring of side effects with imaging. Um, There's the monthly infusions. There's potentially the cost of the uh, medication. So I think that there'll be plenty of people available for other clinical trials, and particularly where there's small molecule treatments available to be tested. When I say small molecules, I basically mean treatments that involve a daily pill rather than having to go for an injection once a month that potentially 40% of the people who take that injection once a month are gonna have side effects. And there's a huge cost potentially for the people to take that drug. And the clinical efficacy is, is modest at best. And so I think you might get a lot of people starting on it, but I'm not sure how long and how many people are gonna stay on it you know, over time. So aducanumab and some of the other anti-amyloid monoclonal antibodies that hopefully may come to market, they're not gonna be the end. And the other thing is that that's one target amyloid. And just like in cancer, you have to have combination therapy based on precision medicine as determined by multiple biomarkers. We need, we're gonna have the same thing in Alzheimer's disease. So for example, if somebody has a, is found to have a tumor in their lungs, the old days were you get an X-ray, you see the tumor, you put people on chemotherapy, mostly often shotgun, and you hope the tumor shrinks. And if the tumor shrinks, you think you have a win. But cancer is nothing like that anymore. Now we do a biopsy of the lung cancer, we type the cells according to multiple cellular biomarkers, and we design a rational combination therapy for all the pathways in that cancer cell that are deranged, that lead to that cancer. And then we monitor those biomarkers over time with this combination therapy. And that's where we're going now in Alzheimer's disease. We have, I described all the multiple biomarkers that we're going to have, inflammation, epigenetics, metabolic, mitochondrial, uh, and so on. We're going to have multiple biomarkers, not just amyloid plaques and tangles uh, for Alzheimer's disease. We're going to subtype people according to, again, the Lewy bodies, the TDP-43 subtypes, the amyloid subtypes, and then we're going to have precision medicine for Alzheimer's where people will be on combination therapy. And so, you know, maybe some of the people that are on aducanumab, what can we add to aducanumab to make that therapy better in an incremental way? Because the benefit right now with aducanumab and these other anti-amyloid is modest at best. So actually imagining a world in the coming year or two let's say or whatever where the standard of care might be uh, some monoclonal antibodies but what will we add to that to get a more clinically meaningful clinical response and one thing we do know for example is that inflammation in the brain around the plaques causes a faster rate of progression and even causes symptoms and people that who don't have inflammation around the plaques may be asymptomatic they may be able to tolerate those plaques that all those amyloid deposits. So I think another ex- uh, high chance there'll be of uh, the next round may be, okay, we'll put people on monoclonal antibodies for amyloid, but maybe we need to add an anti-inflammatory, a very specific brain anti-inflammatory that's gonna not only help to remove the plaques with the aducanumab and other monoclonals, but it's gonna reduce the inflammation in the brain that leads to cognitive impairment in most people. And that might be the next incremental step. And now you're on two drugs. So I I really don't think it's gonna have a huge impact on clinical trials. I think there'll be sort of a kind of an upswing in people that will go on on the uh, the monoclonal antibodies, but eventually I think there's gonna be plenty of room for other clinical trials and by the way we have over 120 drugs in clinical trials today for alzheimer's disease and more than half of those drugs are not amyloid related or even tau related drugs so there's a lot of innovation going on in the field now
2: Uh, my last question for you is about money financing is a huge issue obviously a very small percentage of public and private financing dollars we estimate it to be about 3 to 4% of the billions that are invested annually, is actually focused on Alzheimer's or dementia. It seems like a low number. Does it seem that way to you?
0: Well, yes and no. It's one reason why we need venture philanthropy to take risk. Yes, investors have been afraid of investing in Alzheimer's disease because, oh, well, we've had such a high rate of failure. You know, we haven't had a drug approved since 2003. Now we finally have one. So what we're seeing now is a marked increase in investor interest, and I think it's very timely. You know, I think it's a a perfect storm of good things happening right now. We've been at this, I've been at this since about 1980, so over 40 years. When I started, we knew nothing, I mean, literally nothing about Alzheimer's disease. Uh, The the initial budget for the National Institute on Aging in 1975, at a time when the National Institute on Aging was started, and we were having the war on cancer and the war on heart disease, and billions of dollars in 1975 dollars uh, attributed to those fields of research, and we spent as a nation 625 thousand dollars, 625 thousand dollars on Alzheimer's research. So now the National Institute on Aging is spending 3.5 billion dollars on Alzheimer's research. It's one of the largest. Institutes at the National Institutes of Health, um, one of the largest programs. And, you know, pharma has spent many tens of billions of dollars over the last 20 years on Alzheimer's research, and they failed. But let's face it, 90% of people who work in the pharmaceutical industry will spend their entire careers never working on a drug that comes to market, for most indications, because Developing a drug, developing a little pill to prevent or treat a disease is really hard to do. And what we had to do over the last 40 years is build the basic science so that we can start translating that basic science into new drugs. And we're just seeing an exponential increase. Like I said, there's over 120 drugs in development now. We're seeing lots of biotechs entering the field Um IPOs and and a lot of investor interest in Alzheimer's. And the reason for it also is because of those biomarkers. So we can show target engagement now. We have biomarkers that can show a pharmacodynamic effect of drugs to show that these drugs are working in the brain, which is hard to do. We're able to do modern, efficient, rigorous, clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease. We've established the template for how to do clinical trials. There can be confidence that when we do clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease, now we know what we're doing. And I think that makes a lot of difference for investors to know that there's a pathway here, not only to approval, but to getting the right information and making go-no-go decisions. The upside is huge. Uh, That's always been the case. And in the past, a lot of investors we're making investments because the upside was huge, even though the science was was not necessarily there. This will be the largest pharmaceutical market in the history of the world. Biogen's drug already is being you know, touted as that, and it's a problem, it could bankrupt Medicare. But the, the difference today is that, yes, it will be the largest pharmaceutical market, but also we have the science now to deliver on these clinical trials. And these multitude of different kinds of drugs that are going to be coming through the pipeline. So I think it's very clear we're seeing investors now having more confidence in investing in Alzheimer programs and I hope that that's going to continue. I think it frankly will only increase. It's expensive. Uh, One phase three clinical trial in Alzheimer's costs about 400 million dollars and let's say you need two or three of those. We're talking about a billion and a half dollars all in bring a drug to market, maybe more for Alzheimer's. It's expensive, but the return on investment is huge. Um, Why is it expensive? Because there's all this neuroimaging, but we're going to be able to reduce the amount of neuroimaging because we have blood tests now that reduce the cost of screening and and monitoring of therapy by maybe almost tenfold. And we're going to have digital markers where we can uh, detect people's cognitive impairment and measure it over time instead of very expensive neuropsychological testing, which has to be done now. I think it's a really exciting time to be in our field and developing drugs for Alzheimer's. And I think investors um, are, it's, it's looking to us like the amount of money coming in is, is, uh, is increasing. So it may be a small percentage now, but I think it'll grow. And I'm very optimistic about the future.
2: This is fascinating. Thanks, Dr. Fillett. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks a lot. Same here.
1: Thank you, Dr. Fillett and Lee. As always, BioWorld will continue to report on the incremental scientific, clinical, and business updates in this field. That's our show for today. If you need to track the development of drugs, turn to BioWorld.com, follow us on Twitter, or email us at newsdesk at BioWorld.com. Thanks for joining us. BioWorld, published by Clarivate, is a subscription-based news service. But all of our COVID-19 content, more than 5,000 articles and data entries since the start of the pandemic, are freely accessible.